Welcome back, everyone, to Extra Credit, to our second podcast of the year. We are very excited to focus this month on technology and competitive dynamics facing card issuers in different segments. We really think it builds on our December uh, year-end episode and our last episode where we talked first about uh, performance in the credit markets year-end 2022, as well as consumer behavior trends. And then finally, on our last episode, where we had our guests, Kathy and Michelle, opine on market forecasts, trends, and how issuers are reacting. So we're going to go a little bit deeper and focus again on how the issuers are competing amongst each other and how technology is uh, shaping that competition. So to that end, we're excited to have David Shipper, strategic advisor in the Ite Noverica Retail Banking and Payments Practice, where he focuses on cards and payments. David's experience spans digital, operations, fraud, marketing, profitability, and more at both large regional as well as community banks. He's looked to by mass media and industry publications when they need to make sense of developments in the payments world. For people who are unfamiliar with ITE, David, can you share a little bit about the firm and your role there? Sure. IT Navarica is a research and advising firm. We're based in Boston, Massachusetts, um, but we have a global view. Many of our advisors are in the U.S., and we have also um, some in the EU as well. And we focus on financial services, research, and consulting. I'm in the retail group, and my focus is mostly on card issuance, so debit and credit, and some prepaid as well. And and you know, before joining, I've been in banking my whole career, so here I really bring that focus into what I do here. So when, when our clients are looking at anything, you know, I can kind of help not just from at a high level of what's going on in the market, but we can also often help a little bit deeper than that and, and help to, to design strategies and, and figure out how to deal with those issues. Perfect. Thanks, David. And now I've, uh, relied on ITE for gosh, almost 20 years to help me make sense of the world. So excited to have you and your perspective on today. We will start, uh, as we normally do, the podcast with a little bit of trivia, and uh, I think we settled on payments trivia as the category, and, and true to the word trivia, these questions are indeed that, and so uh, we'll just say that I don't think anyone should be reasonably expected to know the answer to these, so uh, no pressure, but all right. we'll start with the first one. So question number one, the first ATM in the U.S. debuted under the name DocuTeller in Rockville Center, Long Island on June 27, 1967. The name DocuTeller is long gone, as is the name of the bank introducing this ATM. Which is it? A. Fleet Financial, B. Chemical Bank, C. First Interstate Bank Corps, or D. Dime Savings Bank. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, I, it's a guess. I'll just say Chemical Bank. Excellent guess. Excellent guess. That is correct. Perfect. All right. Second question. In 1977, Citibank introduced the Choice Card one of the first cards to appeal to consumers with which two features, so pick two from this list. A, a cash refund. B, automatic payment for the minimum due. C, 24-7 phone support. D, no annual fee. Uh, um, 77, I, 
I'll say no annual fee and cash refund. Excellent. Excellent. Right on. Really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I think you're bending the curve already for uh, for trivia on the podcast here. Josh, look for these references to be cited in the next ITA report. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Third question. In 1950, businessman Frank McNamara was mortified at the end of a meal, realizing he'd forgotten his wallet and needing his wife to come bail him out. This incident spurred him to envision and launch the world's first multi-purpose charge card. Which was it? A, carte blanche, B, American Express, C, diner's glove, or D, Barclay card? Diner's club, C. It was diner's club. Excellent. All right, final question. In 1996, the Supreme Court ruling in Smiley versus Citibank upheld a lower court ruling preventing what? A, states from limiting late fees and other penalties, B, banks from charging application fees, C, oil companies issuing their own charge cards, or D, states from capping interest rates. What year? 1996. So uh, limiting late fees, bank application fees, uh, oil companies having their own cards, or capping interest rates. Uh, I'll say mm, B. No, it was A, states from limiting late fees and other penalties. But excellent. Definitely in the, the top tier of, of trivia responses. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's move from that, David, into uh, into why we brought you on and talk a little bit about the, the cards world here. So you know, first question, credit cards really serve two functions, and, and they're a convenient, convenient payment method for, for everybody and for some a way to make purchases on credit. You spent a lot of time thinking about some of the competitive dynamics in the card market in both of those areas. And so just to start us out, I'm curious as to what you see as some of the the headwinds on both of those fronts. Um, you know, I'll I'll tackle the first part first. If you think about a convenient payment method, I, I really don't think yet that there's anything that's more convenient than a card. Um, you know, it can be on the phone, you can pull it out and you can swipe it and everyone knows how to use it. We've all been trained. So as a convenient payment method, I think it's probably the easiest way to make purchases, but you start to see things like Zelle and Venmo, crypto, PayPal, um, Cash App, you know, all these different options coming into the merchant and people will test them out. I think probably not initially because they're convenient, but because they just want to try it. And if they find that it's convenient because they can easily open that with their app, or, or something like that, then um, I think, you know, it it definitely has the opportunity to compete with cards, you know, for those payments among certain people, and that could grow, and I do think that that will grow. Um, and then a lot of those do really well when there's no place, like a card's not accepted, or, or they, maybe a, a handyman, for example, they don't want to take a card and pay 3%, so they say, can you just sell me the money or something? I think those alternatives are doing pretty well there, um, but ma mainly because the merchant's pushing people to use that, not because it's necessarily more convenient. Um, and then I think, you know, on the other side of that, when you think about purchases on credit, it, well, BNPL is probably the first real threat to the credit card um, at the point of sale or or just in general. And I think it's, it's performing very well. Yeah, I just hear... I haven't seen data, but I've definitely heard 
banks talk about seeing, you know, increase in payments for, you know, if, if they see somebody paying a BNPL purchase, they sometimes see a, a, a slowdown on that specific card. So people are moving over um, some transactions. I don't know the volume, but I think that there's definitely a threat there. The other thing I'll mention is that we have a lot of companies like Plaid that merchants can integrate to, you know, where in the past, you know, a utility company or some other company might say, okay, well, you can add a bank account and then the person has to go and they have to look for their checkbook and they have to do all of that. Or I can just enter a card number, which is something that's sitting next to me probably in my wallet. They're going to choose the card, but now with a Plaid or, or there's, you know, I think there's other providers that do this. You just log in, you know, you go through Plaid, you log in and it connects your bank account and it makes it a lot more easy to make payments like that. So I think, you know, we're we're going to see some shift and some threats um, in, in that area as well. I think, you know, they're just making it a lot easier to make an ACH payment that was possible in the past. Um, so I think cards in general, when you talk about competitive threats, it's there's quite a few coming um, already here. And I'm curious a little bit, most of those things that you mentioned, I think of those, and, and maybe wrongly, but as being something that I would use in an, uh, an online transaction where I'm shopping online or, or something other than you know, the you know the checkout line at the grocery store. Do you see most of those competitive threats or headwinds happening in, in kind of non-face-to-face transactions and migrating face-to-face, or is there anything that you're seeing interesting um, starting in the, the face-to-face world? Yeah, I think, well, I think you're right about... It's definitely more of a threat, um, card not present, you know, when you're doing something online or something like that. But you see that, you know, at the merchant terminals, uh, you're seeing a lot of the jobs options pop up as well. So I, I think they'll perform better in an online environment, you know, taking you know, transactions from cards, but they're they're testing out card present and, and they'll get better at it and people will try it out and you know, either it'll stick or they it won't. It's it's hard to say, but they're moving into both both card president and card not president. Great. Hey, David, let me uh, jump in on something there. You'd mentioned that there are, in in fact, uh, a few, if not more, emerging competitive threats to card, to credit card, both as a you know a lending tool, but also a transaction tool. In your conversations that you have with leaders at banks, you know, coming out of those conversations. Are there any areas where you think, A, they might be overly concerned, too concerned with a competitive threat? It's not as big as they think it is. And conversely, are there blind spots or areas where they are not concerned enough from a competitive perspective? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because you can, if you, if you ignore the top, you know, five or 10 banks and you go lower, they're usually looking higher than themselves. They're usually looking, you know, what is XYZ bank doing or, or you know, uh, or even locally, like the branches around me, what are they doing? But I think where they often miss is, is these kind of threats. Like, how am I going to, you know, make sure my customer or my, you know, cardholder continues to use me? Like, how am I making sure that I'm top of wallet, top of digital wallet? And another thing I don't think they're paying enough attention to is the threat from all of the startup card programs. I mean, there's, you know, these are 
there's a lot there's a lot i mean there's i, I think I, I have a list of about 500 or more um and that's globally but they're just you know maybe some of them have hundreds or thousands of cards but there's a lot of individual card threats that are coming after customers as well so i think you know what a lot of financial institutions are doing is looking like at larger banks to see what they're doing and kind of mimicking or trying to compete there when they should be maybe sometimes looking smaller. And what are what are the small guys doing that could take my business? And and on that front, you know, if you think about what they're not looking at, I don't think that there's enough attention on ESG and sustainability because this is something that some startups have, you know, are successfully marketing. Uh, not a lot of financial institutions are, you know, promoting sustainability, and I think that's a mistake because I think consumers really want that. You know, a recycled card or planting trees, all of those things. And you could debate about what the value of those is, but I think it's important to to customers, and I think it's being overlooked. Thanks, David. Let me give you a, a scenario or situation. Let's say the board of a bank issuer reaches out to you and says, hey, David, we love your insight. We want you to join the board. But in that case, you know, if you were to jump on the board, what are the two or three questions that you'd have the executive responsible for payments and cards be prepared uh, to answer in, in his board or her board updates? My my first question is always kind of the meat and potatoes kind of stuff, you know, like what is your what are your performance, your penetrate card penetration of of you know of your customer base or of your checking accounts? What is your activation on those cards? What's the usage? I think I would I would ask you know how are you competing there? How do you compete against your peers? You know where are you? How are you improving those numbers? Because to me, you know we can talk about you know, pie in the sky stuff and everything that's shiny. And, and we often get caught up on that. But, you know, if, if you're ignoring the basics, then, um, then you're not going to, you know, you're, you're leaving money on the table or you're leaving, you know, volume. And so I think I would start there first of all, and find out, you know, are they looking at the basics and managing that? Cause I think that's, that I think that's really important. And then next I would go to kind of the digital strategy. What are you, doing to be more digital to be you know top of the mobile wallet or or to provide features online that customers are looking for like you know card controls and push provisioning you know being able to push your card from the mobile wallet to the digital wallet and so um i think that that's really important and, and something those kind of things are the things that people in the next few years are going to come to expect the last thing is something I think a lot of people overlook and we don't talk about it really. It's not really a research topic, but you know, when's the last time you reviewed your contracts? Like, do you manage your contracts? You know, a year, year and a half out, you should be negotiating, you know, renewals or, or looking at other vendors and analyzing your invoices. I mean, if you can find sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in errors in, in those invoices. And, and I think it's another thing that just gets overlooked. And it, again, kind of like the meat and potatoes stuff, it's just, it's easy, it's easy wins. Right. And so I think that's probably where I would start. David, I'm curious on, on your second point with the digital strategy, I think it'd be easy for, for someone who's, who's not, not huge with a massive technology budget and also not a FinTech somewhere in the middle to feel like you're always kind of 
one step behind in terms of, of that digital strategy and the, the capabilities that you have. What's your advice for folks who find themselves, you know, in that or feeling that in terms of, yeah, I'm never going to have the, the newest app or the, the newest function. What do I do? I, I used to say, tell people when I, when I was managing, you know, cards, I was like, man, I'm so glad I don't manage online banking because they just have to keep up. They're always, you know, there's always so many new things coming out. And I'd say in the last few years, that's been the case for cards and payments, right? There's always all these new technologies and things are being tested. And I think that, you know, usually you can go to your vendor first and, and a lot of, you know, card processors and other vendors are offering some solutions on these type of things because they know that it's important. You'd be surprised at the number of options that are available today. And if you're a really small financial institution, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, well, it's just, you know, just use an API and you can, you know, connect and, and it just, I think we oversimplify that for a lot of, you know, a lot of financial institutions. I think it's a little bit more complicated, um, or at least it's, it's kind of can be overwhelming. And so I think for financial institutions that feel they're, like they're too small, they can't keep up. I would look for vendors to supply a lot of that, either current vendors or there's companies that focus, like I said, just on push provisioning. There's companies that, you know, offer just these these type of features. They can integrate with card processors or with your online or mobile banking. So I, I think I, I would recommend that they look at what's out there because there are a lot of options to make that simple. Okay. That's interesting. And it, it almost kind of takes you to your third point of looking at the contracts that you have in your, your vendor landscape too, I suppose, if, if yeah. whoever you have isn't doing it for you. So, David, moving away from from the bank issuers for a second, you mentioned your list of 500-some-odd folks that, that you're following or aware of. There's been this proliferation of fintech-driven cards coming onto the market and, you know, effectively kind of renting a, a bank's access to the card network. Some of, of your peers have commented on uh, some of the regulatory pressures facing multiple of the participants in that model. So I'm, I'm curious what you see as some of the pressures and, and what do you expect to see play out or what are you watching for, at least in that space? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting what's happening, you know, for a bank to partner with these, um, these startups and these ideas, I mean, it can be pretty attractive in the sense that, you know, you're boosting volume, you get to be associated with a very exciting project or, you know, company or something like that. Um, and I think it was probably, I don't know, over the last few years, I think banks have very willingly gotten into those relationships. And I, I'm i sure that they do a lot of due diligence, um, but I, I, I think they're just now starting to learn that, you know, you can't just, if you're going to go in on this, you need to go all in. As, as a financial institution, if you're going to enter these relationships, you, you really need to be ready to go, I think go in as a business line because managing one is is a lot is is going to be a lot of trouble you really want to build like the ability to to manage multiple or to to look for multiple opportunities and there's benefits to that you know you get you get the volume out of it you get incentives you can make you know you can get some fees out of that relationship um but what i'm seeing a lot is at least lately with with ftx crashing and the companies declaring bankruptcy, a lot of those card programs are, I think, under more scrutiny. And and you've seen somewhere that have just been closed, right? And I don't want to name names, but um, 
where the financial institution, it seems, you know, pulls out or, or maybe the processor or something gets nervous. And so I think when you think about crypto programs, there's going to be a person who wants to launch a card program for a crypto company. There's going to be more limited options out there, I think. Um, I think people are just nervous. And some of that has to do with the price of Bitcoin. You know, if Bitcoin goes to 200000 everybody's going to want those. You know, like everybody's going to be happy and, and they're going to be excited about them. But right now, um, there's, I think, a lot of scrutiny. And then the financial institution, you know, when they get into that, they are responsible for that underlying program. They need to make sure there's controls in place and compliance. And they need to know not only the client, but the end customer. So um, I think, you know, there's just a lot of pressure and, and regulation and just a lot of requirements that those banks are going to have to deal with if they continue moving on those relationships or, or you know, kind of partnering with some of those companies. So, David, on that, I mean, this is going to be an unfair question, so steal yourself. Um, do you think there is a number of bin sponsors out there where it reaches a competitive equilibrium where there's enough su where supply and demand are balanced, where those bin sponsors can essentially operate a profitable business while fulfilling all the demand in the market? Oh, uh, I'm sh I don't know what the number is, but if you look at a lot of the startups, the smaller card programs that are obviously not banks, they're just launching cards. And in the disclosure, or at least in the U.S. especially, they, they have to name who their financial institution is. And you can see who these banks are that are doing most of these. And it, it's probably 10 or less um, that have most of the deal. Actually, I would say, you know, just a handful have most of the deals, but... I don't know a number, but there's, there's a point where you can manage all of them and you have processes in place and you know the business and you know what you're doing. And at that point, you know, you could take on, you could keep adding more and it doesn't add too much complexity just based on, you know, kind of what I'm seeing. So I don't know what the number is. I'm sure there is a number, but, um, I think if you look, there's a handful of banks that are probably already there and, and getting value out of those. So, David, to, to build on that last question in, in some of the earlier responses on the competitive dynamics, the past business cycle has seen some of the regional banks get out of the card business, but then back into the card business. We just talked about the proliferation of non-bank providers. When you think about the, you know, who's giving cards to consumers and who consumers are going to for cards five, 10 years from now, how does that landscape look different uh, then than it does now? It, it a really good question. Uh, so... There are a lot of startup programs. You know, I mentioned, you know, 500 plus that, that I have a list of. Um, and many of those are credit, many are debit. But everything is fragmenting. So where, you know, 10 years ago, it was just basically banks and maybe a few companies, you know, um, online companies or fintech type companies that offered a card. Now, you can, you know, I think there are some card processors that will allow someone to launch a card program for hundreds of dollars uh, or thousands at the most just to get it off the ground. And that comes with a pre-approved bank relationship up to a certain number of cards. I mean, so what we're seeing is a fragmentation. Everybody, you know, there's a lot of companies out there testing ideas. They're making cards for teens. There's special cards for people with disabilities, um, you know, 
oh, merchants are, are looking at their co-brand relationships and thinking, you know, can I launch this? You're starting to see more merchants launch a card program to their customers. So I think in five or 10 years, that's going to become even more common where I potentially could find a card that's right for me and I could go and I could, you know, apply and get that card and use that card that's almost custom built for somebody like me. And I, I, I see a lot of, in, in the, you know, I see a lot of companies trying that. So you have cards for the affluent, you have cards that link to cryptocurrencies. If you don't want to spend your cryptocurrency, you can get a credit card that uses your crypto as a, a basically a secured credit card and locks that up so that, you know, you can get a credit line without spending your crypto. There's health and wellness card products. And it's just, I think that that fragmentation is going to continue to where in five or 10 years, there's going to be a card program probably for everybody. And it'll be hard for the large financial institutions to keep up with that. They'll focus on, you know, what do most people want? You know, they want cash back, you know, whatever at the time. Um, but you'll also see just probably maybe thousands of, of card program options out there that are just taking a small customer base um, yeah. and, and just making enough money to, you know, just, you know, they're not a, a city or they're not, you know, huge, but they're just, they're big enough. And I think we'll see more of that. Uh, David, so let's bring this home and talk a little bit about debit cards. So we've talked a lot about credit cards on this podcast, but you did mention earlier the strong relationship or the potential in the debit card population of a bank as a source for card growth. Now, if we look at what's going on in the debit space and that, you know, whether, you know, externally influenced or from a competitive perspective, you know, overdraft fees have been scaled back and it's changed the underlying profitability model. Additionally, we're seeing uh, some economic weakness in the U.S., but, but also globally. And, you know, we sense and we believe that it's changing uh, how banks are thinking about their debit card population and specifically their deposit uh, population. So to that end, for listeners who may be credit card focused, what's important from your perspective to know about developments in the deposits and debit business yeah I, it's i mean it's it's interesting because i don't think a lot of you know if, if you look at someone that's in payments that manages a debit card program often and because overdrafts are such a sensitive topic you know you know that it generates income on the overdraft fees right you just know that if the person's opted in um and there are some you know companies that still promote like getting people to opt into overdraft fees they don't focus too much on the overdraft fees when you're managing the debit card uh you know they know it exists but that's not that's not part of you know kind of their bottom line in a sense um, it might be for the financial institution and they may know that your debit card usage can impact that but the debit card leaders are looking for you know getting usage and making sure that they're providing something that people want so that they open checking accounts and they come into the bank um, or, or credit union. And so the biggest developments for a debit card program right now, in my opinion, is some of the, 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 the 
card network changes, for example, online pin lists, you know, so if you make a transaction online, in the past, it was always a credit transaction and then Penless came out after Durban so that the merchant could choose to send it through the pen network or send it through credit. Um, but it was always optional, right? Not all networks, all not all pen networks supported online penless, and financial institutions could also opt out of that if they felt like it was too much risk. Now it's just not possible to do that anymore. So we'll see an increase in pen volume from an online source. And also, you know, there's another, one of the card networks was kind of, had gotten in trouble a little bit for steering transactions towards the signature or credit network versus the pin network. And so that also has kind of been undone. So I think the debit card, especially for an unregulated bank, is become a, going to become a little less profitable because you'll see more volume go to the pin. Um, and they have to manage that, right? Because pin looks low risk for the most part. And, you know, you have to know that, oh, that's an online transaction. So even though it's through the pin network, I need to maybe score that or monitor that a little bit differently. The other thing I think, and you know, we talk about, we talked a lot about the, um, all the startup card programs. A lot of those are debit cards. And I, I like to look at the debit card ones more than the prepaid, like GPR products, but those, those as well. One of the things I think they've always struggled with is they can get somebody to open an account because they have some really cool idea or they're giving debit rewards or something like that. But. I've always sensed that they've struggled with getting that direct deposit and getting that person to, you know, take this as their main primary account. Because even if we don't use branches, we like branches. Um, we just like to have one around. But I think that those companies with everything that's out there, I think they're going to learn and they're going to get better at capturing that direct deposit and, and making that the primary relationship. So I think financial institutions should really pay attention to people who are leaving and going somewhere else. Like they see, you know, transfers going to another bank or, or one of those kind of programs. I think they should pay attention to it because um, that is going to be a growing threat over the next few years um, as those guys, those debit card programs um, learn and kind of figure out how to capture as much of that relationship as they can because the debit or the debt, not the debit card, but the checking is really, in my opinion, the center of the account relationship. Uh, that's the customer relationship. If you have the checking account, then you have a better chance of getting all the other products. Um, and so I, I think banks need to pay attention and make sure they're growing and maintaining, um, not, not having a lot of attrition on the checking account. Yeah. Great, great perspective. So David, we are about out of time. I just really want to thank you for spending your time with us, educating us on your perspective. Really appreciated it. We'll say it's given me a few more ideas about future podcast topics. So thank you on that front as well. And things to watch as well. Yeah, thank you very much, David. This has been great. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>